what we see is, you know, a deeply conservative court that cherry picks the history to reach conservative results, that manipulates the Constitution, that sometimes looks at history when, when it supports the result they want to reach, and other times turns a blind eye to it. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, originalism is defined as a type of judicial interpretation of a constitution, and here the United States Constitution, that aims to follow how it would be understood or how it was intended to be understood at the time that it was written. With the addition of Justice Amy Coney Barrett to the high court, there are now four, perhaps six, about originalists to the Supreme Court, including Justices Thomas, Gorshutz, Kavanaugh, and Alito, and maybe one more which we'll hear about. Originalism has been cited in landmark decisions, including Dobbs and Bruin, but are these justices abiding by the true definition of the word? Are they truly originalists, or are they picking and choosing their history based on their own ideology? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss SCOTUS's move toward originalism, the impact and the conflict between Justice Thomas on the one side and Justice Jackson and a couple others on the other side. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined by David H. Gans. He's the Director of Human Rights, Civil Rights, and the Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. He is an experienced constitutional litigator and scholar. David joined CAC after serving as the Program Director of Cardozo Law School's Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy and as an attorney with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law where he worked on campaign finance and voting rights cases. Back in July, David wrote a great piece for The Atlantic titled, This Court Has Revealed Conservative Originalism to Be a Hollow Shell. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me. Well, David, let's talk a little bit about originalism. What is it and how did we get this term? So originalism is the idea that the Constitution's provisions should be interpreted with reference to the Constitution's text, uh, its history, and the original meaning of the words that are in the document. You know, it is a theory that I think sort of first came to prominence in the 1980s and was pushed by conservatives. I think actually the term originalism itself was from a Law Review article by a law professor who was critical of those theories, but came up with an the name of originalism, and it, it stuck. And it's the theory has had a life of sort of growing importance. And today, we're at a point where you have a conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court. They're not all originalists, but a number of the justices insist that originalism is what counts, and precedents that don't adhere to the original meaning are ripe for being overruled. So we we are having a court that sees itself as originalist and sees itself as bound by the Constitution's text and history and is using that as a 
mantle for sweeping changes, you know, as we saw last term and as we're seeing signs of in some of the big arguments the court has heard this term. Let's go back to 1776 and, you know, the original Constitution as it existed. Is there any indication in the Constitution that it should be interpreted that way? Or is it does it say that it's meant to be a living document and change over time? I mean, so, you know, what I think, so when you say 1776, one of the most important things that I think is often missed in these debates is, you know, it's critical to talk about the whole Constitution. And many of the problems that we see today come from the fact that those who say, I'm an originalist, look at the document very selectively. But if you're committed to the Constitution's text and history, you have to look at the whole Constitution. So that's not only the original Constitution of 1789 that was, of course, you know, marred by compromises made uh, with slavery that throughout our history we've changed. And so it's not only the 1789 Constitution, it is very much the Reconstruction Constitution that abolished chattel slavery, that put guarantees of fundamental rights and equal citizenship into the Constitution that protected voting rights. You have to look at at the Constitution's text and history, the whole history, not simply just one piece of it. So you're saying uh, we're going to look at these amendments, I guess. You're saying that the three-fifths compromise uh, would be the original way to interpret it, and we'd be stuck with that, right? Well, so the three-fifths clause is, is sort of an example of a part of the Constitution that was a very specific rule. I think many of the kind of greatest disputes we're seeing today are sort of what is the meaning of open-ended parts, majestic guarantees of equal protection, uh, due process, that where we see kind of arguments for originalism being made most strongly with respect to the Three-Fifths Clause. That was, of course, specifically changed by the 14th Amendment. Exactly right. And, you know, that is, you know, our Constitution is not static. It's changed in immeasurable ways uh, to make America more free, more just, more fair, more democratic. And so if you're if you care about the Constitution's text and history, you have to look at the, at the whole Constitution, not simply a small piece of it. Right. Well, you said you mentioned that in the 1980s, we began to see the Supreme Court move toward originalism. What was the spark that got that? What was the turning point? I mean, I think so. One big turning point was the nomination and confirmation of Justice Anton- Antonin Scalia to the court, who I think in the modern era is sort of considered the first avowedly originalist justice who served on the bench. Many members of the court who are currently on the court sort of look to Justice Scalia's model for inspiration. I think you could sort of look at Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who at, at her confirmation testimony sort of talked, talked about Justice Scalia, who she had clerked for and said, you know, her former boss's view of how to interpret the Constitution was the same as, uh, as her own. So I think Scalia's addition to the court certainly changed arguments before the court because Justice Scalia often said, I'm going to take an originalist view of the Constitution. Now, I'll say, you know, in many areas, he said he did that, but he got the Constitution 
you know, deeply wrong in many ways. But he was, in the modern era, certainly the first justice who said, I'm going to look at the Constitution through an originalist lens. Well, you've got Barrett and you've got Alito now, Thomas and Scalia. Those are the four, right? Well, so I think Justice Thomas certainly takes the position that originalism is what counts. Justice, Justice Barrett, similarly, Justice Gorsuch. There, there are times in the past where Alito was quite critical of originalism. There was a, there was a case a number of years ago where he sort of he, I think he was arguing back and forth with Scalia, and he said, you know, you don't, you don't sort of ask what would James Madison have done, but certainly of the conservative supermajority, you'd see justices who will, all of them will make arguments rooted in constitutional text and history. Though again, you know what's sort of critical to note is how selective sometimes you see that. If you look at oral arguments before the Supreme Court, um, and there are a number of cases this term that sort of make it, you know, a notable contrast. You have, for example, the oral argument in the affirmative action cases um, back in, in late October, um, which is an area where there's actually a ton of text and history because the framers of the 14th Amendment were the originators of affirmative action and contemporaneous with the amendment, they passed a number of race-conscious measures to ensure equality and foster equal citizenship in the transition from slavery to freedom. And those were attacked for many of the same reasons that conservatives today attack affirmative action, that it wasn't colorblind, that it took race into account and the framers rejected those and, and, and passed those into law um, contemporaneous with the 14th Amendment. But at the oral argument, one of the things that was really stunning was the court's conservative originalists you know, weren't really interested at all in that history. And it, you know, it was Justice Kagan who said, you know, what would a committed originalist do with his history of race consciousness? And this kind of goes to often you see conservative originalists on the court taking a very selective view and particularly taking a very dim view of the Reconstruction Amendments that really were a second founding that revolutionized the Constitution, um, that guaranteed equality, protected voting rights, ensured equal citizenship, you know, that were a major break from the founding Constitution that uh, only put a, a small number of restrictions on the states the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments really changed the Constitution in a fundamental way. They're aimed at ending racial subordination, ensuring a, a multiracial democracy, and often you see the court's conservative originalists kind of taking a dim view. You know, one of the things that you've seen this year is kind of the voice of Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who said, when I look at text and history, it shows me that race-conscious remedies are within Congress's power to enact. This was a point she made in one of the first cases the court heard this term, a really important voting rights case out of Alabama uh, that deals with racial gerrymandering by the uh, Alabama state legislature, where Alabama is saying the Voting Rights Act has to be given a very narrow purview because of concerns of colorblindness. And Justice Jackson made the point very forcefully in 
in her second day uh, hearing arguments, this term, making the point that if we look at that text in history, taking into account race is not uh, itself unconstitutional. In fact, that was, you know, the very point of the 14th and 15th Amendments was to take account of a race to redress a long history of racial subordination and guarantee equal citizenship, including uh, at the ballot box. So, you know, that's an area where you're seeing progressives say, hey, wait, we'll look at Texan history too, but the Texan history shows that Congress has broad power to eradicate racial discrimination at the polls and that landmark statutes that seek to realize those constitutional promises should be broadly, not narrowly interpreted as conservatives uh, would like to do. You know, I'd like to draw a quote from your article that you wrote in The Atlantic where you said it is a deeply unprincipled conservative court majority that manipulates both the Constitution and history to reach conservative results, reversing rights it despises and supercharging those it reveres. It sounds like we should attach an adjective to originalism, like selective originalism. I think that's exactly right. And that is a point that we at the Constitutional Accountability have long said, that if you're going to be an originalist, you know, it, it, it can't just be for some time. You have to take the text and history seriously kind of across the board. And what you do when you when you look at text and history across the board, you find that it supports progressive results in 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 many many cases. But often you see uh, from the the conservatives of the Supreme Court a very selective view of originalism. And one good example of that is, as I mentioned, the affirmative action argument, where you know conservatives didn't grapple with a very strong text and history that shows that race conscious. Measures to foster equality are permissible to realize the values of the 14th Amendment. Well, David, it's time for us to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by David Gans. He's the Director of Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Well, David, we've been talking pretty hard about 
uh, originalism. And if I'm hearing you correctly, it's almost as if originalism itself in the in its purest theory is defeated by the theory of originalism. I mean, I don't mean to be syllogistic, but if you're going to take an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, you have to recognize what Kagan and Jackson are saying, right? And, and recognize that you're wrong. I mean, so I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would go that, you know, I think, and this is something that you see across, you know, I think almost every member of the Supreme Court, everyone recognizes that text and history is an important consideration, you know, and I think, you know, there's some, I think, among progressives who say, well, you know, we should reject originalism sort of root and branch. And I think that's, that's not the answer. The answer is taking the Constitution's text and history seriously across the board and grappling with the lessons of that history. And I think part of the problem is when we're talking about sort of originalism on the Supreme Court today, you know, you're having conservative justices who are not doing that, who are cher- cherry picking the history and who are engaging in an originalist analysis in a selective way when they think it suits them and turning a blind eye to it when they don't think it suits them. And that's, if you're going to be an originalist, you should look at it across the board. You shouldn't sort of say, well, I'm, you know, I like this history, so I'm going to use it. But in another case, if it cuts against where I want the law to go, I'm going to ignore it. That's sort of the unprincipled nature of, of selective originalism, and that's what you know we often see. Another way you can sort of see that, last year um, at the Supreme Court, we heard all these cases that were, were about, we need to look at sort of historical practices, and that's really important for how we interpret the Constitution. So in the Second Amendment case, where... Uh, the court gave a, a, a very sweeping interpretation of the Second Amendment. They said, well, the only justifications are, you know, if they are, if you can point to a history of gun regulation in the past that is sufficiently analogous to the law that is being challenged in court. And it sort of looked at the history and the, the dissent said, well, there's 700 years of, of a historical tradition and the majority sort of cherry picked every example and said, no, that's, you know, that example's not good enough. That example's not good enough. But, you know, you can look and you look at this term. The Supreme Court just heard a really important case called 303 Creative, which is a First Amendment challenge to public accommodation laws, you know, which have, which are very deeply rooted in history. We've, we've had public accommodation laws for over a century, uh, and there was almost no focus on. You know, the fact that these kinds of enactments have this long history. Instead, the conservative supermajority was sort of pushing to say there's a First Amendment license to discriminate for the maker of a a wedding website who didn't want to serve a same-sex couple. And history and tradition, which last term we heard so much about, seemed to get no play at all. And so that that's that again kind of points at the same standards aren't being applied across the board. You know, we have some cases where the court looks at history, and then there are others where there's history to, to there's powerful history, but the court simply just doesn't look at it. What does that do to the value of those opinions? I mean, you we look back at over time as we've gone 
through the analysis of constitutional law, and we've seen some pretty bad opinions. How are these kind of selective originalism cases going to hold up over time? I mean, many of them, you know, I think very badly. I mean, so you could you can look at cases from the Roberts Court. I, you know, I always think of you know, sort of Shelby County versus Holder, which you know was the first you know, major Roberts Court opinion that that gutted the Voting Rights Act that that struck down kind of its one of its most key provisions and ignored, you know, what is pretty clear from the text and history of the 15th Amendment that Congress was to have very broad power to enforce the guarantee of racial equality at the polls. And the court kind of made up this theory that all states had to be treated the same and that Congress couldn't take into account a long history of of racial discrimination in voting by certain states, really ignoring, as Justice Ginsburg made clear in a powerful dissent, that the Constitution had kind of given Congress sort of broad tools to ensure a multiracial democracy, and this guarantee, uh, this requirement that that the court annulled was known as the preclearance requirement, had been critical to sort of restoring a multiracial democracy after, you know, decades and decades of states flouting uh, the Constitution. So I think, you know, you can look at some of the cases that the Roberts Court has decided, and you see many cases where the court simply has not given due to the Constitution's text and history. And I think, you know, you know, you can also look at, you know, a case like Dobbs from last term. And, you know, again, if you're going to be an originalist, you, sh- you should at least talk about the text and history of the part of the Constitution that is under review. And, you know, one of the striking things uh, about Justice Alito's opinion in Dobbs, and something I did a lot of writing about last year, and it's, I talk about it in the Atlantic piece you mentioned, which is that, you know, if you look at, at Alito spends almost, says almost nothing about the 14th Amendment. He spends a lot of time sort of saying, well, what were states doing in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution? But he doesn't look at, you know, one of the reasons we have the 14th Amendment is horrible suppression of fundamental rights, both during slavery and then in the wake of the Civil War. And the point of the 14th Amendment was to guarantee these fundamental rights. And many of the the most horrible abuses of slavery were taking away rights that are not listed in the Bill of Rights. So, you know, slavery itself was sort of the antithesis of bodily integrity. Um, You had denials of the right to marry. You had slaves forced to bear children who would then become another generation that would be held in bondage. So, Many of these fundamental rights, the right to marry, the right to have a family, the right to control one's body, are very deeply rooted in, in the 14th Amendment's history. But Alito doesn't really look at that at all. And instead, he, he looks at the fact that the 14th Amendment talks about liberty, and he says, well, like that's, that could mean anything. So he says, we have to make it mean, you know, we have to look at what were states doing you know, but the problem is, you know, states were criminalizing marriages between interracial couples. You know, the point of the 14th Amendment was 
to say, for years, states have been violating fundamental rights, and we're going to change. We're going to make a break from that system where states had the power to violate individual rights and guaranteeing fundamental rights, including rights that are not specifically listed in the Bill of Rights, was kind of a key part of the 14th Amendment. And Alito just doesn't discuss any of that. You know, and I think when you look at at that opinion, it simply has, you know, it it sort of purports to be originalist, but it does so by saying, oh, we're going to look not at the, the text and history of the Constitution, we're going to look at what states were doing. And that was the same argument that was made after, you know, in by the defenders of school segregation in Brown. They said, look, you know, uh, the 14th Amendment allows us this, ha- this school segregation was legal at the time of the 14th Amendment, and Brown rejected that argument in Loving versus Virginia. The Supreme Court rejected the idea that the fact that there were ban- inter- bans on interracial marriage at the time of the 14th Amendment made those constitutional. And so, you know, Alito's method by saying, don't look to the Constitution's history that meant to protect fundamental rights, look at what states were doing in 1868 is a sort of formula for saying many of our most cherished rights aren't rights at all. Uh, And so there's something very sort of deeply wrong from an originalist perspective with pursuing that argument. Well, David, it's time to take another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with David Kins. We've been discussing originalism. It seems as if you would take the Rehnquist Court's originalist view and apply them to current day uh, Robert's court, the, the two of them really don't hold up well together, do they? I think the Rehnquist and Robert's court is very different. There are Rehnquist court opinions that, that we could talk about here as well. I mean, I think it, it, it makes sense to focus on the here and now. You know, what we're seeing is a court that sort of says it's originalist, that kind of spreads this message that text and history is what counts, but you know, when you look closely, the rulings that are coming out don't bear that out. Instead, you know, what we see is, you know, a deeply conservative court that cherry picks the history to reach conservative results, that ma- manipulates the Constitution, that sometimes looks at history when, when it supports the result they want to reach and other times turns a blind eye to it. What is the, really, what is the antithesis? What's the antonym to originalism? The debates have always been kind of over originalism on the one hand and living constitutionalism on the other. 
you know, which would, which would be the, the view that, you know, the constitution sort of evolves over time. You know, the difficulty is if you say, if you're not bound by the constitution's text and history, that that can support, you know, so you have, you, and, and often I think what, what you have today is kind of a conservative living constitution, you know, where corporations have the same rights as, as we the people. There are atextual limits on the power of government to protect civil rights. Um, we haven't even, you know, talked about conservative efforts to undermine the administrative state, all which are propelled by kind of made-up doctrines that don't have any roots in the Constitution's text and history. So I, so I think, I don't think the answer is to sort of say we should jettison originalism, but we should take the Constitution's text and history seriously and apply it across the board. And if you do that, it, it strongly favors progressive results. It makes sense. Well, David, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to share your final thoughts and highlight where we can find you on the Constitutional Accountability Center. Sure. I'll sort of end with, I think, this important point, which is that a lot of what you read about the Supreme Court today is that this is an originalist court. And I think it's important to sort of reject that premise, you know, it's not an originalist court. It's a court that manipulates the Constitution, cherry-picks history to, to produce conservative results. It's not a court that fairly and honestly looks at the Constitution's text and history and follows it where it leads. It's critical to understand that when the court is issuing sweeping opinions that move the law to the right, you know, it is doing so to produce conservative results. It's not simply following what the Constitution says. Well, David, where can we find the Constitutional Accountability Center? The work of the Constitutional Accountability Center can be found at www.usconstitution.org. I am on Twitter at, my, my handle is at David H. Gans. Great. And it's G-A-N-S, right? G-A-N-S, yes. Wonderful. Well, as we wrap up here, I'd like to thank our guest, David Gans. He's the Director of Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show, David. Thank you. Thanks so much, Craig. I enjoyed it. Well, David's certainly got uh, an opinion somewhat like mine in, from the standpoint that originalism is a kind of warped interpretation of the Constitution. But in reality, it's the methodology that's the problem. It's not necessarily, while it is an issue, it's not necessarily from a constitutional analysis standpoint. The real problem here is that we have justices that are attempting to justify an, the end by distorting the means to get there. And that is not an appropriate method of interpreting the Constitution. I don't think these cases are going to stand the test of time. I'm disappointed in a lot of ways of the ways Cases that were overturned last year have been overturned with little disregard for precedent. And I'm very concerned that we have a Supreme Court that's gone rogue. Now, those are probably severe opinions for some, but you've been on, if you're a regular listener on this show, you know that the Constitution has itself defined how it needs to be interpreted. And the justices now that are not interpreting in that way really need to give some long, hard thought to the consequences and the long-term societal influences that they're changing as a 
result of a warped interpretation. Well, and with that lovely thought, let's turn to happier times and wish you all a happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, happy Christmas, happy holidays, and more importantly, a happy new year, because hopefully we'll turn a leaf and enjoy what's coming down the pike for this next year. Please join us for our new environmental series that will start in January and run through the remainder of the year covering environmental laws, toxic contamination, and other problems that we're having in our society. You can also visit us at the Legal Talk Network where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.